Yeah, it's, it's been quite a quite an adventure, and it's still ongoing now. Um, you know, I was shot in the head by a sniper. We, we knew there was a sniper in that area. We had actually three two had counter sniper teams out looking for him. He had already killed a few of Marines in that area. He was quite good. I was shot behind the ear and it came out my face. And thanks to David Corman, who literally saved my life right there, but then also uh, Corporal Bueller, who risked his life and drove me at 70 miles an hour to get me to the A station, even though we had standing order to never drive past from 15 miles an hour because we literally hit IEGs every day. This episode was hosted by Robert Boudreaux. Major of the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve, currently assigned to 4th Civil Affairs Group. Today we're joined by Justin Constantine. Justin is a retired Lieutenant Colonel who served in the United States Marine Corps from 1997 to 2013. A graduate of James Madison University, Justin also holds law and advanced degrees from the University of Denver and Georgetown University. Justin's life and military career were forever changed in 2006. While deployed as a Civil Affairs Officer in Al-Anbar Province, Iraq, Justin was executing a routine patrol when an enemy sniper's bullet found its mark just behind his left ear. Justin is now the Chief Business Development Officer at a company called JobPath, yourjobpath.com, which specializes in veteran transition and employment. He has been a keynote speaker in countless public appearances, including delivering a TED Talk in 2015. In addition, Justin continues to serve as a motivational speaker in both the corporate world and to the public sector. Sir, it's an honor to have you join us. Welcome to the 1CA podcast. No, thank you so much for inviting me. It's, uh, I'm really pleased to be on your show today. All right, thank you. Well, sir, your name is uh, kind of a household name for most uh, veterans or those in the affiliated with the veterans community. But for those who haven't heard about you before, uh, would you mind giving us a little bit of your military background and how you came to be where you are today? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's overly generous of you, but uh, I do, thank you very much for that. I joined the Marine Corps when I was at law school at University of Denver, so um, I went to Oscar Cannon School in 1997. I had applied, I, I had actually applied for ROTC scholarship for college and did not get it and thought, okay, well, uh, the military is probably out of the question, but I was working at the school gym in law school, a friend came by and we talked for a little bit and he was leaving, I asked him where he was going and he said, I'm going down to see the officer selection officer, and I asked what that was, and he told me, I said, well, wage you want to join the Marine Corps, we're 27. And he said, you know, they have a special program for lawyers. And I said, well, tell him I'll come and see him tomorrow. And I did, and <clears throat> that was April 1st, uh, 1997, and I submitted my package very quickly, and, and they liked it, and, you know, I had been captain of my rugby team, I was the chairman of the honor council there at law school, and had some other things on there they liked, and then I, I didn't think I was, I didn't think there was any room for me for that summer, and then about two weeks before OCS started, uh, it, or my class at least, they said, can you get to Virginia and, and go, and I said, sure. I canceled my summer job, packed my car, drove from Colorado back to Virginia, where actually I'm from, and went to OCS, um, finished that and came back, finished my last year of law school, and then came right into uh, the fleet as a second lieutenant, um, as, a, as a judge advocate. And so I went to Rhode Island for, for schooling, and then my first duty station was Okinawa, where I was a criminal defense counsel, which was, an incredible year. I had the um, 
unlike other state, un, un, unlike other bases around the country, um, where a lot of cases settle and there's a lot of guilty pleas um, and less contested cases in Okinawa, many of the cases go to, go to trial. Which, as a trial attorney, that was that was a fantastic learning experience. I had probably a dozen court marshals in that year, way more than that. ADCEPs, administrative separations, and, and on and on. So very busy year. I went to Camp Pendleton where I was a prosecutor for about three or four years. I left active duty in 2004 and joined the reserves, uh, came back to the National Capital Region and joined the reserves in 2005. And that was uh, the law of war debt, which was mostly lawyers. Um, we drilled at Henderson Hall and we would teach to appoint Marine units the law of war and Geneva Convention and other things that they needed to be aware of before they deployed so they wouldn't have to worry about those things once they got there. But then in 2006, a message came out that the fourth civil affairs group, which was then at Anacostia, was needed some marine officers for their upcoming appointment in the fall. And the general said that someone from our unit needed to volunteer. And I thought, well, why not me? I'm, I'm single, I, I did not deploy in active duty. Some of the other guys in the unit, everyone else was married and some of them had already deployed. So it's kind of a no-brainer. And so in, I think it was June of 06, I made a lateral transfer over to the fourth CAG. And, and then we trained, and I was a civil affairs team leader. I was a captain at the time. So what was uh, the, I'm sorry if I could step in there for a moment, sir. What was the, what was the civil affairs training like at that time? Hopefully it's a lot better now. Uh, you know, I, I set you know I set in into a unit that was you know gearing up for deployment. A lot of the guys, uh, men and women already knew each other. It was just it was a you know reserve unit that was fully functioning. It, not everyone was like me that they were kind of just joining for the deployment, and so they knew what they were doing. My team, I had a team of about eight of us. Half of them had already deployed once before. We were in a and our debt was comprised of, I don't know, probably four different teams. There are four, I think, four team leaders like me, all captains. And I'll tell you, the experience level of the debt commanders ranged greatly. These are lieutenant colonels. And so some had a lot of experience and have been doing this for quite a while. Some were brand new to this kind of built like I was. So in our situation, the training was in large part left to the individual team leaders. We all, we collaborated, so we were all doing the same training uh, for our Marines and often did it together. But it really wasn't coming so much from on high besides the educational component, but as far as when tactically, it, it was oddly, this is a very odd situation, but it was, it was, Took a lot of initiative and on, on the officers and the staff and COs to come up with it and drive the training. So um, that was that was a little surprising to me. That being said, we did a lot of PT and drills and drills and drills and drills of different scenarios that we might encounter there in combat. For instance, five of us in a vehicle, driver gets shot, how do, we, how do we react? We would do that dozens of times over and over again. Um, and then as a whole unit, as the whole civil affairs group, we would periodically practice and get training on 
not just patrolling, of course, but really how to interact with the locals and how to have a meeting with a local leader, um, how to secure an area before the, like how my team would secure the area before I would have a meeting. So there was, there was a lot of um, schoolhouse training and also uh, more kinetic stuff, but it was in a vacuum because we were never training with an infantry unit or a group we were supporting. So it wasn't realistic. It was, to a certain extent it was, but it was, you know, only part of a, a much larger picture. Also, we didn't have, we didn't spend any time at home developing relationships with organizations here in the States that could help us once we were there. For instance, once we got there and we identified, okay, we all we all know in civil affairs, we have to hand out a lot of things, whether it's, you know, the stereotypical soccer balls or blankets or kerosene heaters or even chalk for schools. But we relied, my team relied on the supplies that the previous civil affairs team had in the warehouse there. We didn't have relationships with anyone here, whether it's the Red Cross or something like that. And when I talk to my senior leadership, they said, well, just develop those contacts and get something going. Um, okay, that, that's great, but when you're in Iraq in a war zone and trying to then reach back to the States and do that, it's, it's not realistic. And so it was a fair, fair training, but it wasn't great training. So it sounds like it was a lot of on-the-job training um, at weekend drills but it was focused heavily on the kinetic piece and immediate actions, things of that nature. Yeah, exactly. And, and once, once you know, we activated uh, in the middle of June, and so that was full time, and we deployed at the very end of August, beginning of September. So we had you know, June, July, and August to where we're all day long, we were, we were working on the training. I guess there was a good, I think they did a good job on the educational piece. We had some folks come up from Quantico who, who you know, a translator, for instance, and folks who did this full time to give us briefings about what to expect about working with local Iraqis. We had to get spun up on some of the, uh, and recertified on different weapons. There was a different shooting protocol on the range for close, close uh, action which I hadn't done before on active duty. We sent a lot, we, we would go to some nearby bases and do training all day on, on that type of thing, which was good to go. But um, yeah, a, a lot of it was just trying to get the mindset straight and, and understand that this is gonna be tough, hard work and to get in the swing of things. And I, as I mentioned, I was fortunate that half of my team had already deployed, the corporals and, and the sergeant already deployed once before. So they were, I was able to lean on them heavily. Now, how large was the civil affairs unit that you deployed with? Was it just a team or were you part of a larger detachment? Yeah, my team was less than 10. And, and so there are four teams in a jet and probably three or four jets, I think. But when it, once they deployed, we originally, our team was originally in Fallujah, but that was just kind of a holding pattern. Well, I was part of a leader's recon. We went to um, Taji for a week-long training there. But then, you know, we were attached to 3-2 out of Camp Lejeune. So as soon as we could, we got out to where they were in Havania. So 
it was just our team out there and my boss who was not very familiar my, my civil affairs boss who was not very familiar with the train expected me to come from Albania to Fallujah for weekly meetings but there was such a great risk of IEGs doing that that we did that once and I said I, I don't want to do this and let's just talk on the phone or over the computer and, and then my boss from 3-2 the battalion commander Colonel Grosse was like have him come out here if he wants to meet and, and then so that wasn't an issue. Now uh, were you able to do some pre-deployment workups with 3-2 uh, before going downrange? No, they're, they're already there and I just I just happened to be attached to 3-2. Other, other teams are attached to different units and one of the teams ran the joint operation or the joint uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a civil affairs center there, uh, which handled a lot of things in Fallujah. So we were, we were all attached to different groups. And so as it turned out, I had played on Akiguri, I had played rugby with Colonel Grossier, so that was fantastic. And we already knew each other. The the civil affairs team we took over for had started out from what I learned, started out strong, but fallen into a little bit of disfavor because the uh, my counterpart, the other captain, didn't really, towards the end, didn't really want to go outside the wire and do things like that. And the colonel was like, well, your civil affairs, if you're not doing that, what, what use are you to me? And so my guys were 180 degrees different. They wanted, they really want to be out there and doing things every day. And so, although we didn't train with them at first, we got to know them pretty well because we were on a small base. How many is a very small base? We lived in a warehouse. We used the same gym as in Chow Hall, had meetings together, things like that. Did you have an opportunity to talk about with your team what you were looking to accomplish as your mission? You know, frankly, I, I told them at the beginning that my priorities were accomplishing our mission as a King John from Hire and then making sure everyone made it home safe, safely. And so we actually had a certain amount of leeway and independence on what projects we were taking. And so while 2006 was a very kinetic time uh, in Al Ambar, uh, we were pushing west, 3 was pushing west towards Ramadi, trying to, trying to get there to help alleviate some of those problems. Uh, Colonel Grossier, and we had troops in combat every day, there was a lot of action, um, this is right before the surge of 07. Colonel Grossier felt very strongly, or believed strongly in civil affairs and winning over the hearts and minds so that each town he could leave and push westward knowing that it was a safe environment and that it wouldn't just fall to pieces when we left and that we would provide support for them both uh, militarily but also through the civil affairs efforts. And so he left it out to us to figure out what those needs were and, and to make it happen so, and i and i told my team that there were the eyes and ears and we had we had a tra our own dedicated translator which is very helpful but I, I made sure to include them i i had to kind of split my time with going uh come up with missions for my team uh and just our team but of course we had to go out with a security element from three two because you always had to have four at that time the SOP was four vehicles when you went anywhere. We only had enough for two. Um, and I wouldn't want to go anywhere out there without the security of three, two. Uh, but also, 
um, I was on Colonel Negroce's jump team, which was a dozen of us who went out a lot together. So I had to split my time between the two. But I let them know early on that I was counting on them for a lot of initiative, that Colonel Negroce would provide guidance. We could have a certain amount of independence on picking and choosing what projects. We had to do a good job of tracking on them and showing progress and just being able to explain why we were doing certain things. Most of my uh, guys were college students and in the reserves at the same time and very, very capable and, as I said, very helpful. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Do you have an idea for an upcoming podcast or know someone who may be a good person to interview? Contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com. Hello again, friends. John McElligot here. I want to tell you about another reason for supporting this show. 1CA is under the umbrella of the Civil Affairs Association, a 501c19 veterans organization. People can support the podcast through tax-deductible donations. Money raised will be used to send junior NCOs and officers to two events hosted by the CA Association. The first is a symposium held each fall. The second is a roundtable and workshop held in the spring. Each junior NCO and officer selected will also receive a membership to the CA Association. If you'd like to support the podcast, then please visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. That's civilaffairsassoc.org. And please remember that all donations are tax deductible. Thanks for your support. Uh, were you able to accomplish anything on ground? How long was it before you uh, before you were injured? Yeah, I was I was only there for six weeks before I was injured, but um, we were, and I as I understand that a lot of the projects we had started came into fruition after I left. One of those projects was paving some roads that were, and all, all this sounds very easy here, but of course it's very, very challenging over there. Um, just getting materials, getting a, figuring out how to make a contract with someone who doesn't speak the language and there's no judicial system to enforce it and paying them. Uh, all this is very challenging. Even just paying them, um, the quote unquote bad guys knew when it was payday there and, and would we had to pay in cash. And so it was dangerous to pay these folks because then you had to go home and they were targets. And so we had to find ways to work around that, but like we do with everything, but paving um, still on the roads there because in some places uh, it was almost like moon dust and that's very easy to hide IEGs in that type of environment. And so we have, a couple of critical areas that we're working on getting them paved or at least graveled down so we wouldn't have that issue. <clears throat> we inherited um, a, kind of a bizarre project, which was a very expensive dental chair. And I'm not sure why that was a priority to the former team, but it was. And so we got a dental chair to the area, which I guess it was important to the local population. I'm not sure about that, but that took a lot. You would think that would be easy. It would take a lot of coordination to get some, get someone to drive it from Fallujah. A lot of the locals did not want to be driving on those roads for, you know, extended periods of time <clears throat> because of IGs and just other threats as well. 
at any given time, we had about a half a dozen projects we were working on. We also were working on small things like working with a local school. And I, I took some pictures at the time because the school was in such terrible shape. Although we received word from higher to not worry about school so much, which is a typical civil affairs mission. But this one was particularly bad. And we went on a mission to visit with the principal. We had to go on a night mission because he would be targeted if he was seen talking to us during the day. It had been a former prison, and so there were bars on the windows. There was no grass there. It was kind of a caked mud playground in the middle of a square of buildings, which is fine when it was hot, but when it rained, it would turn into complete mud. The inside, the blackboards were permanently marked with chalk that would not come off. There was probably and we went during the day to a couple of the classrooms. The teachers would not be seen, would not, know, would not be in the picture. They didn't want their faces seen. They were afraid it would happen. But there were probably 30 or 40 kids packed in these small rooms with stuff all over the walls, no air conditioning. Uh, the quote unquote bathroom was like a standing donjon, which is perennially backed up. So it was just really. Um, sad, if nothing else, and, and of course, Saddam Hussein didn't really care about educating the people. And so that was a project, that was one project we were working on to get things started, but it, those, those took a long time in coordination. Um, we had a meeting, we were working on a water treatment plant there because they would take water directly out of the river um, and it would go through a, this treatment plant, which ostensibly would clean it and then pipe it to the individual families. They have they had uh, pipes that came right into the system. But we have one of the, one of the guys in our in our civil affairs debt, thank goodness, was a civil engineer. He was very helpful in understanding how things work and could assess the value of things when it came to pricing and, and how long it would take and what's realistic. Well. We ran some tests to figure out that nothing was going on in that water treatment center. It wasn't cleaning the water at all. This is filthy water. It looked clean, but there's animals going in the bathroom, going to the bathroom in, of course. There's all sorts of stuff in that water. It was just coming in, going through the system, and not being cleaned and piping out to the family. So imagine how much work that would take here in the States to do something like that. So we were, we were working on that. Uh, that was something we had just started when I was injured. So any of those take a lot of time and effort. We would, and in fact, to meet with the minister to talk about that water treatment plan, he definitely did not want to be seen talking with us because of the insurgents. So we had to fake a kidnapping to meet with him where we would go in the middle of the day and grab him so people could say, yes, he was kidnapped. So we take him inside a warehouse and then he was, you know, we we're friendly with each other, sat down, had tea, talked about what could be done, and then quote unquote released him later, which is a, a bizarre scenario, but he had to be able to say that that's the only reason he was talking with us. So it sounds like you were required to wear multiple hats. Uh, one day you're dealing with education things, another day you're dealing with infrastructure, civil engineering. I'm assuming that you uh, worked on rule of law as well. Um, did you have an opportunity to? To work in that area? 
I didn't, I wasn't there. I didn't do any really rule of law. There was a battalion judge advocate who was part of 3Q and that he did work on that. We also had to conduct a lot of patrols to presence patrols. So we were, you know, when you could see the army would drive through the towns, really buttoned up and so it has a much different effect on the local people and insurgents when you spend more time walking through and looking around and and using a translator to talk to people and making your presence known and we get a lot of those with the colonel um sometimes we would patrol for you know five or six hours a day which is very hard there you know, over 100 degrees with 65 pounds of protective armor and multiple weapons but we would sometimes have to go and make payments to families who we had damaged our property or injured someone in their family or you know other sorts of collateral damage we also had one day a week where local Iraqis came to the front gate and a couple of my guys and I sat at a table out there where we would hear their complaints and decide how we would if we would make payments to them or not and, and we also had instances where we would get um, go with the, the disperser and a security element and to go out and, and make some of these payments and that was that was a challenge as well and you know because we're carrying large sums of money uh with us over there because there's no banking the way we're used to it so yeah lots lots of different hats and at the same time um, working with my team to make sure they're staying motivated and providing a daily sit rep to my boss and flus every day i tied that to one of my corporals and i just reviewed that night when i got back but and you know we also pt'd and ate together when we could and it's just a lot, a lot of different things going on at one time. Right. So in 2006, you were gravely injured. Yeah. Um, how did you find a way to, to build on that and transition to, uh, to your current career path? Yeah, it's been quite, a, quite an adventure and it's still ongoing now. Um, you know, I was shot in the head by a sniper. We, we knew there was a sniper in that area. We had actually 3-2 had counter sniper teams out looking for him. He had or I killed a few of Marines in that area. He was quite good. I was shot behind the ear and it came out my face. And thanks to David Corman, who literally saved my life right there. But then also uh, Corporal Bueller, who risked his life and drove me at 70 miles an hour to get me to the aid station, even though we had standing orders to never drive faster than 15 miles an hour because we literally hit IEGs every day. And those, cause a lot more damage if you're going more than 15 miles an hour. The sniper also shot in the Marine behind me, Corpo Huerta, right center mass, right in the forehead, but it, that bullet miraculously ricocheted off his sand goggles, which aren't designed for that. Uh, he was knocked out for a couple minutes, but he was okay. Uh, almost shot Colonel Grossig, just barely missed him when he ran over to help keep me alive. So it, um, the Marines, formed a defensive perimeter with the vehicles and started shooting outwards. And so they executed uh, defensive tactics perfectly. You know, but that, that was week six. Interestingly, I think it was probably week two, I was on, we went on our first night mission as a vehicle patrol. And I was in the, or the passenger seat up front, of course, and I was watching out front with my night vision goggles. We were the third out of four vehicles along with 3-2. 
and I saw one of the vehicles drive over an IED and it looked like a like a Fourth of July thing. It was, you know, you could just see it explode and big explosion. And immediately it was kind of funny, even though our our that wasn't funny, but our reaction was funny. Even though we at the Seal Heresy had practiced for something like this many, many times, immediately over the radio it was like tag pull over. <laughs> Basically get out of the way, let us do our thing here. And I was like, You're right, you got it. And and they, they took care of that issue. Uh, no one was killed, fortunately, it's just uh, severe concussions. But then two weeks after that, we were on another foot patrol, and the lieutenant and I were walking near each other. We were using our ACOGs uh, to try to see what this bump in the road was. It was common to hide IGs in the road, of, of course, whether in the carcasses of animals or under trash or bury them. And we got pretty close, and someone was clearly watching us and they detonated it, and I heard it and saw it go off, and the lieutenant and I dove to the side at the same time. We were sprayed with gravel and debris. Thank goodness the person who had placed that ID there had put it in backwards, so we were not sprayed with metal, but with just stuff in the road. And that was a very bizarre um, situation because I got up, dusted myself off, and we kept on with our patrol for another two or three hours. And I just was thinking, man, I could have been ghosted right there. Like three months ago, I was in my you know, air conditioned office in DC reading contracts for ICE. Uh, but here I am <laughs> doing this stuff. And then but when I was shot in the head, I don't remember. I remember earlier in the morning, I don't remember uh, getting shot. I was in shock. But I talked to everyone around me, including the doctors who operated on me 30 minutes later. They honored me at an event in Marine Corps birthday ball a couple years later. So I got to thank them and talk to them about that. But I, I've had, you know, I don't know, something around a dozen reconstructive surgeries. The first surgery of Bethesda was 18 hours long. Uh, they told my family if um, they waited 12 more hours for that one whole face would have collapsed. I was first, I was in relationship to the high school for a few days and then to Bethesda. They took bones out of my legs to reconstruct my upper and lower jaw and I have bottom dentures. A few years later, I was fitted for upper dentures, but I had lost surgeries on my mouth to get it to a point where I was strong enough to support those dentures, but they really ultimately didn't fit that well. So this whole time, up until now, uh, I cut my food and I only have a couple of teeth on the top. And so it's it's always, and part of my tongue was shut off. So it's, it's always a challenge to eat. I have a diminished sense of taste and smell as a byproduct of my injury. But what's interesting is right now, literally, um, hopefully at the end of this month, I'll be having some surgery with some maxillofacial surgeons in New York. It's a question if I can get the insurance laid up correctly to fix everything in my mouth, including putting in new dentures on the top. So I will be able to bite like I used to and have teeth up there. And so fingers crossed that will happen at the end of this month, 14 years later. So this is how it is for Wounded Warriors where a lot of us are surviving injuries that may have killed us before in previous engagements, but the road to recovery is long. And um, you know, I went to counseling for PTSD for a year and a half, uh, weekly, one-on-one, 
an hour at a time counseling until I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm in a good place. And, and that was one of the best decisions I could make. That's a long time to go with counseling. A lot of folks don't want to do that. So I did go back to work as a lawyer. I went back to work. Um, I had some friends who were, who were also Marines, many of whom were civil affairs officers uh, in the Department of Justice and uh, doing immigration work. So I was there. And it was actually the best job for me, for me because it was appellate level work, which meant uh, we, were the, we were the last stop before someone was either told they really had to leave the country or not. And so we, we would read their briefs to the appellate court and we would write um, our briefs in response to them. And so early on, I didn't even have lower dentures yet. So I would drool all day long. There was no teeth there to, to catch the saliva. And it was hard for people to understand me, but this job was minimal talking, mostly research and writing. And so I literally had a, what I call a drawer rag. It was a towel I have, which I would just have with me at all times. And I could do my job perfectly well though. Um, my boss there, the, the top level boss, very senior guy, had been a sergeant in the Marines in Vietnam. He understood my situation and was happy to bring me aboard. That's actually the job I wanted coming out of the active duty, but they were on a hiring freeze at the time, so it's crazy how it worked out. But I was there for a couple of years and I went to Capitol Hill to work as counsel with the Senate Veteran Affairs Committee. And then I took one last job as a lawyer with the FBI um, in DC and Northern Virginia at the National Counterterrorism Center uh, assigned to a, a counterterrorism unit. And so I, I continued practicing law. Um, I retired from the Marine Corps in 2013 as, you know, as Lieutenant Colonel. And I also left the practice of law at that point and started my own job, my own business as a motivational speaker. I had already started doing it on the side. A lot of people, I've been invited to see a number of Marine Corps birthday balls and different companies were interested in hearing my story. And I thought, well, this is something I can do. And I'd been trained to speak as a lawyer and really enjoy it. And so I left the Marine Corps because I, I had been drilling in DC and also down in Florida at Marfort South. And I was able to do it all. I received some awards and was promoted twice, but I still felt like I was taking out some boat saves because I was on medical hold the whole time. So I, I said, I don't want to be one of those guys that takes up a slot forever. And so, that's why I, I left them. I realized I could sustain this business along with my medical retirement and have a go of it. It's been great. Every presentation, I talk about my time in Iraq. I talk about the corpsman who saved my life and the corporal, and then lessons I learned based on my time in the Marine Corps and overcoming the adversity of being shot and how it applies to business. And then. On top of that, I'm also, um, as you mentioned, Chief Business Development Officer at Job Path, where we focus, uh, we're a very robust online platform focusing on veteran employment. Getting back to work was a big part of my recovery. Like, I was at home, I was in the hospital only for not even two months, and they said, you'll get better quicker. They need a bed space, uh, and they said, you'll actually get better quicker at home because every day there'll be interruptions from politicians or nonprofits or other well-wishers, all good good people, but very disruptive. And so I could go home and sleep for 12 hours at a time. They taught 
my girlfriend, now my wife, Dahlia, how to clean my mouth out, how to take care of me. I was on a feeding tube uh, for a long time, so I, that's how I ate. And then I just go back to Bethesda periodically for surgery and follow treatment. And then Johns Hopkins, I had a lot of care at Johns Hopkins. So that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> no, understood, sir. And uh, you talked about, or you touched on briefly, overcoming adversity and, you know, sort of in the the current uh, COVID environment uh, where a lot of folks are kind of working on their own, alone and unafraid. Do you have any uh, tips or suggestions for how folks can stay motivated, uh, try to keep synergies going, things like that? Yeah, what I, what I learned actually is very relevant during COVID. In fact, I'm pivoting as a sneaker, I'm pivoting to more of a wellness, total health and wellness platform because you know, COVID, we're in the middle of it right now, but it's going to cast a long shadow over the way we operate as a country uh, going forward. I mean, there's no quick fix to this. It's going to be around for a long time. It's changing the way businesses are changing permanently. Some aren't coming back. We know this. Most people are working from home. Most people will be working from home for quite some time. And they also have kids who are home and, and having to work from the kitchen table, for instance, and so it's challenging. But I'll say that as best as people can, if they can draw a hard line between work and home life. I know right now one bleeds into the other, but and I've worked at home now since I left the FBI. So for seven years, I worked from home. So I had some background in this. You really do need to have a time where you turn it off, whether that's five o'clock or six o'clock or whatever your schedule is and you're not checking your phone your computer throughout the evening but where you're focusing this, this all requires extra backup sitting down by yourself or probably better with your loved ones to decide what your priorities are and what you want to do with your life and what you want to do right now and what measures of success look like and action items you can take to get there. And, and the smaller the action items, the better, frankly. But physical fitness is a part of that. I posted this morning on LinkedIn. I did a workout upstairs in my living room, and so I posted showing that. Um, yes, I wish I could be in the gym, but I can't. So doing it from my living room, there's lots of options for that. Staying healthy right now is something we can all do, but you are the product. You are the talent, no matter what your job is. And so things that we already know very well, but maybe haven't practiced like eight hours of sleep or whatever is the right number for you. It doesn't have to be exactly eight hours. Drinking lots of water. I try to get eight hours of sleep. I try to drink at least 75 ounces of water throughout the day. Exercising, some level of exercise every day and then getting outside, really vitamin D from the sun and just taking small breaks throughout the day to go for a walk or read or listen to a podcast or whatever it is where before, you know, we, we were doing these things in an office. You know, you would get out, walk around, go to a meeting. Um, you, you'll burn out otherwise. Uh, but I can't stress enough the hard line and for me, I, I shut things down around six o'clock because I have my second workout of the day then, and then we roll into dinner. And then after dinner, um, I like to read a little bit and we probably watch some TV or something like that. But we can all spend time looking hard at our schedule, identifying what it takes to succeed. And, and then 
making sure of finding time for each other and let the weekends be weekends. There's no need to be so attached to our phone or our computer that that's driving us because that there will always be more work to do. Even as a small businessman, I feel the pressure to do more and do more business development and talk to more people. But we have to stay healthy right now and obviously following the CDC's guidance. But I just mean generally speaking, give yourself a break and try to spend time with the people who are close to you. All right, sir. Well, those are all really excellent suggestions, and uh, we appreciate you taking time to join us uh, on the podcast. Stay safe, sir. Okay, you too. If you enjoyed this podcast and others, please remember to subscribe and hit like so the 1CA podcast team gets important feedback and support. The Civil Affairs Association is a proud sponsor of the 1CA podcast and the Unomia Journal. You can find more podcasts like this on www.1capodcast.org. The Unomia Journal is expanding its content to reach a broader audience and engagement across defense and governments to include other partners in allied countries. New sections in the Warrior Scholar Corner and the Team Room aim to deliver content useful to our members. Check out the Unomia Journal at www.unomiajournal.com. If you are not a member yet, please visit the main CA Association website and find a new range of membership options. Don't miss out! Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.